Hey, tennis fans, and welcome to another edition of Matchpoint Canada. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. We're the official podcast of Tennis Canada and members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. And Mike, great news this week as Grand Slam Tennis has officially returned at Flushing Meadows. The U.S. Open is now underway, and there's there's so much really to cover. I, I don't really know exactly where to start, but I, I think a good place might even be taking one step back to last week where we had the Western and Southern Open at the very same site. And our very own Canadian Milos Raonic made his fourth career Masters 1000 final uh, before falling to Novak Djokovic in the final. Yeah, I mean, there's no wrong place to start, is there? We could go anywhere and it would be just, yes, we're back to Grand Slam tennis. And, you know, I love tennis in any way, shape or form. And it was great to get Cincinnati uh, happening last week. But the majors always hold a special place for me. And I think most tennis fans. And, and who thought, you know, if we go back a few months, who even thought we'd get to this point? Who thought that we would have this moment that everything would, would fall into place to allow the event to even attempt to happen? So, um, you know, for all those reasons, it makes it extra special. And always special for us here at Matchpoint Canada when we've got a Canadian or several Canadians to get excited about. And who better to talk about right now, as you mentioned, than Milos uh, Raonic, who had a terrific uh, restart to his tennis season. And we spoke to him about a month ago, and he clearly was telling us all the work that he put in and the different phases and the different training blocks and how he was building up to competition. Well, obviously what he was doing worked because making his fourth career Masters 1000 final, despite the loss, uh, was such a huge step for him. And when you compare it to his other Masters finals. This one was far and away the best showing he's ever had. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The best best performance that he's had. And he keeps getting, you know, closer and closer to maybe that first career win over Novak Djokovic, but but now 0-11. And he certainly had his opportunities in a match where he won the first set 6-1, but uh, final score 1-6, 6-3, 6-4. And in fact, he held the break of serve to start that third set. But uh, Novak Djokovic and his unbelievable returning skills kind of pushed him over the edge. But uh, for me, only positives this week from, from Milos Ram- as you said and uh this wasn't you know particularly an easy draw I know Andy Murray isn't the same player that he once was uh but Murray coming off a nice win over Sasha Zverev you thought maybe he would give Milos trouble and Raonic just cruised by Murray he faced some adversity against Filip Krajinovic who was playing fantastic tennis this week Krajinovic blew Dominic Team off the court which was a big surprise to a lot of people and uh Raonic you know had his back against the wall he was uh you know a against it 4-5 in that second set with Karinovic having a chance to, to serve him out. He faced a match point uh, against his serve as well in the third, comes back there. Again, beats Stefano Tsitsipas for the second time this season and then has his opportunities against the world number one. So, uh, Ranich, you know, we came out of that conversation on Canada Day uh, thinking very highly of, of his chances when he resumed because he did have all this extra time. Like who better could benefit from this hiatus than someone who's had so many health issues and not had a lengthy period of time off where he can get his body right. Uh, and that's exactly what he did. And, and what better preparation for the U S open than to play an event like Cincy and have all sorts of different matches, matches where you probably thought they were going to be tougher, like against Andy Murray, a player who had previously kind of dominated him for the last few years and to have a routine win that must have been you know despite Andy still just you know still in the infancy of his return uh, to ATP play still such a confidence boost to Milos to have a a routine straight set win like that and then being challenged in matches where he didn't think probably he was going to be challenged to that level and then having you know arguably uh, one of his best performances against the world number one and when you look back at Milos's previous Masters 1000s, uh, 2013 at the Rogers Cup, uh, after he beat Vashik in the semis, he gets taken down 6-2, 6-2 by Nadal. He loses in Paris in 2014 to Djokovic, 6-2, 6-3. And in 2016, his most recent Masters 1000 final, he lost again to Djokovic handily, 6-2, 6 love. So this was a major step forward for him. And, uh, you know, it was kind of interesting. And I had a laugh looking at all the tennis pundits on, on Twitter and social media saying, oh, Milos is definitely a top threat now at the Open. Well, you know, I feel like we've always felt this way, that if he's healthy, he's going to be a threat at a hard court or grass court slam, absolutely a top 10 threat. And, and he's proved that. And now here he is back into the top 20. And, uh, and, and I think Canada's number one threat for a slam on the men's side right now. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I, I was just looking back at some of his Grand Slam results over actually the last five calendar years. And keep in mind, he's missed a handful of Grand Slams due to injury, some absences from the French Open. But of 16 slams that he had played since 2015, he had made round of 16 or better in 12 of them. So you think about that consistency. You're talking about 75% of the Grand Slams that he's played over the last five seasons. He's at least making the final 16 players. And, you know, quarterfinals appearances have been there as well. Uh, of course, a, couple, a semifinal at the Australian Open, finals at, at Wimbledon. So we've seen the consistent deep runs. I mean, we saw it earlier in the season in Melbourne when uh, he got to the quarterfinals in Australia. And again, no shame losing to Novak Djokovic because – Right now, everybody is losing to, to Novak Djokovic. This guy, uh, I, I think he said it kind of tongue-in-cheek as a joke when he won Dubai earlier in the season that he was trying to go undefeated. Right, um, right. Perhaps benefiting from no tennis for five and a half, half months, but he is still undefeated this year. He's 23-0, and 0, and... Uh, for me, he is such a heavy, heavy favorite to win the U.S. Open over the next couple of weeks. I, yeah, I mean, the list, it, the list of who could stop him is very short. And he's going for Grand Slam number 18, and he's without his two main rivals, Federer and Nadal. And uh, that certainly, and uh, I'm not putting an asterisk next to if he does get number, uh, number 18, but it certainly helps not to have those two guys around for everybody in the yeah. draw. It's funny because, you know, after a quarantine – you would totally understand any upsets that could happen. And yet I've never felt more sure of Novak winning this event than I do right now because he's just continued his incredible play and he's just continued this Houdini ability that even when he's down, it doesn't matter. It never matters. It could have been the finals from Wimbledon last year in those match points uh, against, uh, who was it here in Cincinnati, both against uh, Roberto, Roberto uh, Batista Yep. And Milos dropping the first set and coming back. Uh, what else comes to mind? Earlier this year against Dubai, Monfils. Twitter was going crazy that Mofis was going to take it from him, and that didn't happen. Yeah. Uh, this guy, you know, he could have 10 match points against him, and you'd still say, <laughs> I give him a 50-50 chance here. Like, it's just incredible, this ability, this resiliency. It's, I've never seen it before from anyone. And uh, for all those reasons and more, he is the undisputed, unwavering, uh, favorite to win this event and as we start to look at the draw not a bad draw for him either in that top half mm -hmm. uh, yeah you, you're right I mean highlighting that he is an absolute mental giant right now uh, he simply refuses to go away and, and I think this is a nice draw for him um, Jan Leonard Struff who I thought was actually playing pretty well uh, in Cincinnati faces Djokovic and kind of had his clock cleaned in a couple of sets. So uh, he, to me, isn't really a threat out of the first few matches that he would deal with. You know, I, I actually have to wonder, and this isn't being Canadian bias, uh, just in terms of sheer firepower, Denis Shapovalov might pose the biggest threat in his quarter. We just haven't seen that consistency and performance from Dennis uh, at the Grand Slam level. So if he can get on a nice little run here, and Dennis has what I would say a, a pretty nice draw to begin his tournament, um, I wonder if he could at least push Djokovic at all. I mean, of all the Canadians, uh, male and female, uh, Dennis, to me, has the best draw of any of them. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's actually unfortunate as we look through the draw, and we'll talk about the, the other Canadians momentarily, but uh, it's, it's too bad that some of them didn't get better draws or that some of them had to be put so close together like Milos and, and Vashik who could meet in the second round potentially. But right. Dennis does have a nice draw. You know, maybe Taylor Fritz in the third round. Again, there's no fans at this event, so that home court advantage of having a pro-American crowd behind you eliminated it doesn't exist it's equal footing um you know D david Goffin maybe but again i don't i don't consider him the favorite against chapeau i think dennis has a pretty good path to get to the quarterfinals in fact like i feel he should be getting to the quarterfinals at, at this stage of his career and he, he certainly is able to uh, hopefully it's not one of those instances where you look at the draw and you feel a little overconfident confident perhaps because it looks a lot I don't want to say easier, but it looks more manageable than, yep. than other areas of that draw um, are. But you're right. I think of all the players in that top quarter, I mean, who better than Dennis to, to push Novak? But uh, even then, I don't, I don't see him being pushed very hard. I think Novak's going to make it to the semis. Uh, there's, there's, you know, maybe three or four players that I think could have a realistic chance against him, and, and nobody in that top corner fits that bill for me. 
yeah, nobody in the top quarter. Perhaps in the top half, you wonder uh, if Stefano Tsitsipas can get on a bit of a run that he is certainly a threat. Uh, he's been to a Grand Slam semifinal before. Hasn't been to a final yet, but he could definitely pose a danger. Interesting for Raonic, actually, uh, in his section of the draw. We were just tough. mentioning... It's so tough. We were just mentioning Roberto Bautista Agut and how well he played uh, at the Western and Southern Open. Raonic does lead that head-to-head 5 nothing, but I thought RBA was playing some of the best tennis really he's been playing some of the best tennis of his career the past couple of years so that's going to be a very difficult third round match I would probably favor Milos but that's something that's challenging that's funny I, I had no idea he had a 5-0 and head-to-head against RBA I never would have guessed that yeah and I feel like we're always talking about RBA you know the last couple <laughs> years at many moments I know you're a big fan and I'm definitely I've definitely become one because of the way that he's played and his his ability to, um, you know, well, look at him. He's seated eighth. I mean, yeah. he's not a dark horse or anything either, right? Like, no. he's justified where he is through his play, his consistent play. And that little section of the draw is so tough where you have him and Milos who could meet in the third round and then playing the winner, perhaps, between Dimenauer and Hachinov. I mean, that little section, the rest of the draw, you think, oh, players have a chance to kind of get into it. Those four guys, unfortunately, got kind of screwed by a tough draw. Uh, because any of those four I could see making it to the quarters, the finals, but they've all got to kind of go through each other in one, you know, permutation or another, unfortunately. Yeah, this is a very, very challenging corner of the draw. I will say, I think we were reflecting on how difficult a draw Raonic had back in the Australian Open uh, with a couple of his early matches. I remember, I think, a second round encounter, encounter with Stan Favrinko, which was very, very challenging. And if I recall, that went four sets. So so Milos is no stranger to difficult draws. Um, but He's but been this through one, it all, right? He's seen it all yeah. at this point. He's the veteran who's had his moments, played so consistently, as you talked about earlier. Uh, it would take a lot to uh, ruffle his feathers. Um, that being said, it's, it's not the... Uh, you know, easier progression you'd like to see through the first few rounds. When I'm looking at that bottom half of the draw, the the one prediction I'm going to make is that we're going to see a Russian in the final because there's three of them who were super talented in the bottom half. And uh, and one of those three, if it's not Medvedev repeating what he did a year ago, uh, Hachinov and Rublev has also been been quite strong. And I like his draw. Um, It's not a big stretch for me to say this, of course, but I'm going to say we'll see a Russian in the in the bottom half final. Yeah, I mean, I would probably pick Daniil Medvedev as the player to reach the final out of the bottom half. Andrei Rublev was playing, like, unbelievably well at the front end of 2020. He won his first 14 matches, actually, and had a couple titles to, to, start, to start his season. And then this is what makes, I think, predicting this tournament so difficult, is we have, like, no lead-up whatsoever. We just have one tournament at the Western and Southern Open, and Rublev lost a match to Dan Evans. Like, how deep can you look into that? Does that tell you, oh, he's out of form, he can't win matches? I'm going to say no. I'm going to say it was the best two of three match against a good player. He lost. There's no reason he couldn't, you know, run to the quarterfinals or semifinals here. So it's very challenging in this, in this case. How do we sort of pick the favorites of form and momentum when there really is barely any? And that's the other thing uh, that you just made me think about is this isn't best of three. This is suddenly best of five. And that's going to test these guys in in a whole different way that we haven't seen in many, many months. Well, we haven't seen it since January, obviously. It's one thing to come back in a best of three. How have you trained and prepared for this grueling beast that is a grand slam on the men's side, best of five? And that's going to give some players uh, additional challenges that we might not have seen in Cincinnati. Yeah, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, but look, if I'm if I'm pinpointing one name in the field who could conceivably stop Novak Djokovic, for me, it's Daniil Medvedev. And uh, I, I think part of the reason is he has exceptional variety, which we actually saw on display last year's U.S. Open final, uh, where it looked like Nadal was cruising to a title, and he storms back from two sets to love down. He started serving and volleying, drop shotting. He can play so many different styles of tennis, and uh, so fun to watch, actually. He played such a great match with RBA uh, last week. Bautista Gut somehow found a, found a way to beat him. But I, I think just with his variety, his defense, they call him the octopus. The wingspan of Daniil Medvedev covers so much ground. It's so hard to solve the puzzle and, and figure out how to consistently win points against this guy uh, that I, I think you look at his draw here with 
not many threats, probably Guido Pella or like Feliciano Lopez in the third round that I think he's very comfortably going to move through the first week that if he's kind of fresh and feeling strong and, and healthy come a quarterfinal semifinal, he has a shot at this thing. You know what I'm going to miss with him this year is the interaction and the playing the crowd against him and using that energy for motivation. I'm going to miss those post-match interviews where he's throwing it back at them and, and playing the role of the villain. And, uh, that's what I'm going to miss. And, and I think I heard they're going to pipe in some like fake crowd noise as we've seen in, in other sports. I think um, that is, I think that's just for, for the television audience though. Oh, I only we're going to hear that. Okay. Um, and that's, you know, what's funny is when I'm watching the NHL playoffs, I've actually enjoyed having that fake noise in the background. It just makes it more normal, but for a player like him, not having that is going to be a big difference. And for those players that feed off the energy of the crowd, whether it's for them or against them, it's going to be interesting playing in that sterile environment. You got to, you know, find all that motivation purely from within. Yeah. Yeah. And actually I I thought uh, Dennis Shapovalov does thrive off the energy of the crowd, particularly at Flushing Meadows. Uh, I think he's had a great relationship with the New York crowd. You look at 2017 where he made that run to the round of 16, almost got to the quarterfinals. He was such a fan favorite. He plays with so much passion and fire. I think he's going to have to figure out how to navigate matters without that energy, without that boost. That might be a challenge for him. Um, Whereas that's where I, I often do lean towards like Emilio Sharanich, who is just so businesslike, uh, doesn't really reveal so many emotions on the court that maybe he doesn't need the crowd atmosphere there behind him as much. Yeah, so professional, so much maturity and so much experience to, to get to that stage as well. Um, who are your dark horse picks outside, let's say, the top 20 that you've uh, sort of highlighted or put a star next to as, as potentials in the men's draw to, uh, to have a good run here? Yeah, well, I mean, it feels like cheating just to say Milos Raonic because he's still seated 25th. In those yeah, it doesn't count. It doesn't count. <laughs> All right, that doesn't count. I'm not letting um, you go there. Okay, that's that's fine. Um, I, I did just mention Dan Evans with his win over Andre Rublev. He's a crafty, tricky, difficult player, so I wouldn't be surprised to see him, say, make a push to the round of 16. But the one name I actually have highlighted, he's seated 26th, and you raise an eyebrow when you beat Dominic Team 6-2-6-1 in like an hour. Philip Krajinovic was really playing fantastic tennis at the Western and Southern Open. I love his two-handed backhand. And it feels like something for him is just like clicked on the court. I don't know if it was this off season and hiatus of tactics and training that he has changed something, but not only did he blow team off the court, he beat Fuksovic, I want to say one and one. So he was absolutely crushing guys. And Milos Raonic had his back against the wall. Krajinovic very easily could have made a semifinal or better just last week. We haven't seen a grand slam run from him, but uh, looking at his draw, he is kind of my dark, dark horse pick to, to maybe make the second week of this tournament. Yeah, and those you know players who had success in Cincinnati, they're not actually carrying that momentum from a different city and a different venue. They're taking yep. it from the same place. So, you know, for them, that momentum, I think, is even more legitimate because it's the exact same venue and courts that they were playing at, conditions, no crowd. It's, all, yep. it's identical, basically. It's almost like, hey, let's just do it over, deja vu, Groundhog Day. And, uh, and yeah, he could be one of those guys. Um, I wrote down, and and by the time I say this, I feel like this match will already be over by the time that we uh, we go live with our episode. But uh, Kevin Anderson is a previous U.S. Open finalist and opens against Sasha Zverev, which is a very difficult match. But uh, in in a Grand Slam, Sasha has had difficulties in the past, and and, and Kevin's back in a place where he's going to be feeling comfortable. So I'm just going to throw that out there. His ranking would be higher if not for all the time he's missed for injury, of course. And then we've got a previous U.S. Open winner also seated 31st in Marin Cilic. And he's not the player he was, uh, you know, once upon a time. But again, familiar surroundings, who knows? And he could pair up against Dominic Team in the third round. Team who once again, I mean, if anyone's going to find a way to overplay during a pandemic and a quarantine, it's going to be Dominic Team, who it seemed played a ton of exhibition events. Um, so who knows what he's got in store for us uh, over the next two weeks. Yeah, no kidding. 27 exhibition matches. Uh, This guy can't get enough of tennis. And I I think you're right. Kevin Anderson versus Sasha Zverev. That's really that round one match that a lot of people have circled 
for a potential of a major upset, which to me and you, uh, yeah, you're right. I would not feel like a huge upset given uh, Zvera's form and how, how dangerous Anderson can be as a player. Uh, we should mention uh, Benoit Pair out of this U.S. Open after testing positive for COVID-19. Uh, I wonder, there were reports of other players having some contact with him, uh, you know, outside of those social distancing parameters, if they avoided a positive test, somehow tested negative, but uh, that's concerning to me. So I was listening to Noah Rubin's podcast uh, this morning, just before coming on with you here. Uh, some really great insight, and obviously from a player's perspective too, I really enjoy listening to him and, and Mike Caddy and, uh, and their podcast uh, talking about these things because of the insider aspect. And apparently there were 11 players who were in close contact with Benoit Pair. Uh, I think the majority of them were French players, which is not a shock. And they're still in the draw. Now, they've had to sign a new waiver. There was that waiver that all the players had to sign and basically say, you know, I'm not, you can't hold the USTA responsible for anything that happens to me here. Um, but they had to sign a new waiver. Um, their access is restricted, but they can still practice and participate in the event. So it's like, it's like they're in a bubble within a bubble is how I understand it. But they're still there, which kind of contradicts how I thought things were going to play out. I almost thought that if, you know, the contract, contact tracing tied you to someone who tested positive, that could be grounds for being removed from the event to try and maintain its integrity. And I, I'm, you know, we saw a couple of players in Cincinnati that got the boot, I believe, because one of their physios or members of their team yeah. had tested positive. So why are things different? Um, is the USTA, is tennis taking this seriously? Or are they just setting themselves up for disaster here? I mean, we have no guarantee that we're going to see this event play itself out over two weeks, depending on how the bubble is maintained. And does tennis want to be like Major League Baseball, or do they want to be like hockey and basketball and do it right? And when I see something like this, and again, we're still gathering information, it's pretty fresh. It seems to me like they're starting to cut corners right as the event is beginning. And that doesn't make me feel super confident. I don't know how the other players in the tournament feel about it, but it's not a good look at first glance. Yeah, yeah, that certainly raises a lot of alarm bells. And with the USDA uh, function in the sense of treating every player the same, like if you do get a positive test from a Stefano Tsitsipas, from a Serena Williams, per se, would they, you know, have the guts to say, sorry, we, we have to kick you out of the tournament? Or are they worried about these uh, different types of logistics, having to keep the superstars within their draw? And, and we know this is challenging for tennis to navigate because they are just individual players. It, it's not a team with say you know 30 50 on the roster and someone tests positive you find a way to to get them outside of that bubble or something yeah. like that a, so a positive test you're gone i don't care who it is that's got to be a given but yes. i you know just the the people you're hanging out with you're up at night playing cards playing video games you know just chatting whatever it is look benoit pair is not exactly a social recluse he's not a hermit right he's <laughs> one of those guys that no. of course he's going to be and, you know, if you don't have any symptoms, signs, if you don't have a positive, why wouldn't you, I guess, hopefully maintaining still some, some social distancing, but uh, it is worrisome. And, and we'll see the next 24, 48 hours are going to be really interesting to see who else potentially from that cluster. And hopefully it's nobody. But I just, um, I'm surprised at the way they're handling it and, and in an unfortunate uh, way. Yeah, yeah, I agree. You are listening to Matchpoint Canada. Remember, find us on Twitter at Matchpoint Can. We're also on Instagram. Uh, before we move to the women's side, we, we got to touch on uh, some new political news, I'll call it, uh, because players, several players actually recently resigned from the ATP Players Council and they've broken off and formed their new players association uh called the professional tennis players association the ptpa and this was spearheaded uh by one canadian vashik pospisil who of course has been vocal about these matters in the past and also novak djokovic who had been the head of the players council uh, so they've gathered they've started up their new players association they took a, actually a socially distanced photo on court with uh you know dozens of players on board distanced um but getting on board with this new players association uh with the goal of obviously getting more transparency from tournaments, directors, organizers in terms of prize money, uh, improving things for the tour overall. Uh, this was not without controversy and backlash. Rafael Nadal and Roger Federer both sided against this. Nadal saying in a tweet that we have to stand united, not divided at this time. I just, well, we'll start with your thoughts on this new PTPA. Did it surprise you? Do you think this can work? This is your favorite topic. Hey, I know you love this stuff. Like you just, you, 
I'm it kidding. Never... You hate this stuff. Yeah, well, it, it just keeps coming back over and over. I feel like we get a similar storyline to this every, you know, three times a year, basically. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me like it's a big soap opera, like one of those daytime cheesy, you know, drama-filled, gossip-filled soap operas that just can't sort itself out, you know, stay tuned till next week's episode to see what yeah. happens next. Um, I, I've got no problem with the players either forming a union or finding some sort of solidarity um, because apart from the guys at the very top of the game, tennis players are not making enough money and they're not seeing enough of the big picture. They're not seeing enough of the, the bottom line that the tournaments and, and other vested parties are seeing. Yeah. Um, Nadal and Federer being against it doesn't surprise me. Does it really affect them one way or the other? They're set for life. They're set for the next 10 lifetimes. Uh, and I like both those guys for a lot of reasons, but when it comes to this, I think they're kind of missing the mark. Maybe now's not the right time, you know, days before the U.S. Open is to start, or maybe now is the right time because when else are you going to get this much press, you know, coverage and uh, ability to highlight these issues than right before tennis gets, you know, back. You don't want to squeeze it in between a couple of 250 tournaments. You want this to be front page news if you're in the Vashik Pospisil Novak Djokovic and, and many others. If you're in that camp, if you want to see change and if you want to see progress. So um, I'm okay with it. I think tennis needs to come out of this, this bubble, out of this quarantine, out of this bizarre year we've had stronger. And maybe they need to take a step back before they can take two steps forward. And hopefully that's what this will lead to. But unfortunately, kind of getting the vibe that it's going to splinter things a little bit more. Also, you know, missing from that picture of all those tennis players on the court were any females. So that should have been from the get-go. That's not like an afterthought. Oh yeah, we, we meant to talk to the girls, the women, you know, we meant to include them. And well, if you had, you should have done it ahead of time and had enough foresight that that would have been looked at unfavorably. I mean, tennis really has to get its shit together. I'm sorry to, to be so blunt. Oh, right. uh, because as much as I don't mind talking about this and I'm hopeful that it'll lead to positive change and progress for the sport, I feel where you're coming from when you kind of, you're like, oh, I'm so sick of hearing about all this stuff over and over again. So get it right, sit down, get people talking. I mean, I don't know how much dialogue you're going to get now over two weeks now that the slam has actually started and players are going to be really focused on and yeah. should be focused on what they're doing on the court. Um, it's going to be interesting to see where this goes. And uh, as much as I'd like to see it come out stronger, when you're already getting these factions that are starting up, uh, it, it doesn't leave me with a, a super confident feeling. No, we, we can't have these separate divided groups operating differently. And, and the problem with tennis, it, it is an individual sport from players of so many varieties of backgrounds, different countries, and uh, everybody in a sense is an independent contractor. Everyone is working for themselves. So how do you create that unity? I, I'm remembering months ago, um, which now just feels like paid lip service of saying, we just need one overarching uh, federation and tour that uh, Federer and Nadal were talking about to, to unify the men and the women. Where, yeah, where did, did that, that go? go? What, what happened from that? What happened? I don't we know. Got no, we got no news, no progress in the sense of that. I've but to me, it's, yep. I know. So to me, it's very telling, though, that you had Djokovic, Pospisil, Kevin Anderson for one, John Isner. All these players make that sudden resignation from the ATP Players Council. That tells me they were very frustrated behind closed doors, that they were clearly not making any progress in these matters in terms of probably the transparency, prize money, uh, clearly players needing to prolong their careers and how difficult this must have been over the last five months for the players, you know, not only just outside, say, the top 100s, talk about the guys in the top 300, 400, 500. How do they even maintain this career that they've, yeah. you know, carved Look, out? In any professional sport, if you're in the top 500 players in the world, you should be able to make a living off of that, yes. right? It shouldn't be you're doing it just for the love of the sport, but you're, you're barely breaking even or you're, in many cases, taking a loss. Mm -hmm. uh, any other professional sport, you know, the big sports, you're in the top 500. You're set, you know, if you manage that money properly. Yep. And I'm not saying we need to turn them all into millionaires because that's not viable and realistic. But they should at least be, you know, that redistribution, the way that either more money should be shared with the players or perhaps at the top, you bring it down a little bit and spread that out. These are just my feelings. Uh, if you're outside the top 100, it's not an easy go. And, and that doesn't make sense to me. 
Yeah, yeah. And uh, there's certainly uh, problems with leadership at the top. I'm sure of it. We see players complaining about the lack of transparency all the time that they find out about a tournament cancellation from a journalist on Twitter. They're not getting that direct contract with the ATP or WTA. Uh, But I personally don't love the timing of this because I think it's serving as a distraction from the U.S. Open, but perhaps on the other side of the equation, it's making headlines and maybe that was the point. I think I'm siding. Look, I, I almost always side with Andy Murray. I'm siding with him here. (laughs) He chose not to sign because women are not involved in this yet. They weren't consulted in this yet and he needs more information. So that's pretty much where I stand on it. When Andy Murray retires, he should just take over tennis. I just say, hand, <laughs> yeah. the ra- hand the keys to tennis, okay? Here you go. You've got the key to the city. Andy Murray, do whatever you please because he's like the ultimate voice of reason. It was almost Always. like handed from Billie Jean King directly to like Andy Murray somehow. <laughs> this, you know, he's just, he just gets it, you know? Yes. He just gets it like no one else. And uh, who has beef with Andy Murray? Who? Does anyone have beef with Andy Murray? I mean, he seems to have everybody on his side. So I say we let him run tennis, all of it, the whole thing, um, because he just seems like he's got his head screwed on uh, the way it should be. Let's move on, though, as we're talking about women and including the women um, in all of this, should anything happen. Let's move to the women's side of the draw. And um, uh, where is it? There it is. Number one seed, Karolina Pliskova. Karolina Pliskova uh, just remains the probably least talked about superstar you can find on this tour, right? And it still feels like she's under the radar and has a number one next to her name. That's that's crazy to me. Uh, She didn't make, you know, a big splash last week at the Western and Southern Open. Um, However, this has to be a great you know, perhaps her best opportunity to win a Grand Slam. She was in the finals of the U.S. Open four years ago, 2016, so she clearly likes the surface. Number one seed and six of the top ten players missing, and we've seen consistent deep runs at the Grand Slams where Carolina gets close and doesn't close. So I think this is prime opportunity for her to win. I say that, and she is by no means the player I'm picking. I hear what you're saying. This should be the, pro- you know, but, but I feel like it's almost like, I don't feel any confidence for her. No, you're right. Tournament. And she lost first None. round last week. You, uh, I should know. She lost to yeah. Kuder Matova first round last week. Kuder uh, Matova so. in Cincinnati. I mean, she won in Brisbane to start the year off, but has been very cold since. I mean, when I say since, I mean, the other tournament she played yes. pre-COVID uh, did not go well for her. Um, She's played in 13 Grand Slams since her U.S. Open final back in 2016. And only two of those 13 times has she made semis. So I, I just don't feel it. I, I don't see that she's had the regular slam success of going super deep to really give me a positive vibe here. And while on the men's side, I see the veterans as being the ones, you know, to I don't see an unknown coming through. On the women's side, it would not surprise me to have an unknown or a dark horse kind of have a deep run and see the favorites kind of slide by the wayside. So, you know, and then there's a player I look at in her section of the draw, who's been playing fantastic lately. uh, And that's Jennifer Brady, who's up to the top 40 for the first time, I believe in her career. Uh, The interesting thing is I was looking at their head to head. They've only played once. They could meet in the third round here. They played once before which was at the Open in 2017. I remember and, this. And, and Pliskova destroyed 6-1, 6 But yep. Brady's come such a long way since then, playing so well right now. Um, and then there's other players in that top section, like uh, CeCe Bellis is super talented. Caroline Garcia could get it together. Like Pliskova could lose against any of them, and I wouldn't really bat an eye, to be honest. Yeah, I should note as we're recording this, Angie Kerber just punched her ticket into the second round. That's that's another name where she's always capable of turning it on for a Grand Slam run. It wasn't that long ago, just over a year ago, that she won, won uh, Wimbledon. Am I right? Or no, two years ago. Yeah, and she plays great in even years. Isn't it the even years Kerber plays great? And the yeah, odd sorry, years 2018 she, she won Wimbledon. Right, I so it's 2020. That. So in theory, if this uh, you know theory stands true, then Kerber should have a real good run here, I think. Yeah, And she she's got a nice draw too. I mean, I don't know, Mardik, Pudenseva, who do you, Vondruzova, I don't, I don't see any of them necessarily. Kerber's got the experience. And, um, and yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if she had a deep run here. Who do you yeah. like? Who do you like overall here? Top half. Who are some names 
um, that you see coming through? There's, there's one obvious one, I guess. Yeah, we'll start with the obvious one. and that, that has to be Naomi Osaka. She did withdraw from the Western and Southern Open final uh, due to a hamstring injury. I have a feeling with her team that's simply playing it safe. Maybe something was slightly nagging there, but an understanding that you're quickly making that sharp turnover to play grand slam tennis she didn't want to risk anything at all and you look at the tennis she was playing before withdrawing from that match against victoria azarenka uh, she was looking really really solid like clean wins she blew diana yastremska off the court six three six one great win over contavite elise mertens who's been one of those players who's in great form right now she beat her to get to the final i think osaka has things clicking right now granted i've thought that in the past and we've seen early exits from her uh but She's done it before, two-time Grand Slam champion. She's done it at the U.S. Open as well. Uh, I'm probably favoring her in the top half, at least. I want to talk about Osaka, and I want to talk about Yastremska, so don't let me forget this. Yes, but, uh, yes. But first of all, Osaka, and, and not only is she clicking on the court, but off the court, she continues to be, what a voice. Her and Andy Murray, they should hold the keys to tennis. That's it. Yeah. The two of them, your male rep and your female rep, they should govern tennis forever. <laughs> um, because she's done, again, such a fantastic job of, of speaking up and being the voice of tennis, the conscience, and speaking up for Black Lives Matters in the wake of uh, the, the shooting of Jacob Blake, that, that horrendous shooting. Uh, and we're not going to go political, but we are going to stand. We do stand for something, and we have mentioned many times on the podcast this summer how this is a, an issue that needs to be at the forefront and doesn't, you know, cannot just, you know, slide away. we got to keep talking about this. And she's done it once again. And I believe it was her, uh, you know, I don't want to say threat to withdraw because she went back in after tennis, you know, the ATP, WTA, and everyone pulled the plug on tennis for that next day. But uh, yep. it wouldn't have happened without her. It wouldn't have happened, I don't think, without her taking that stand and everyone saying, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, we should be doing something. We should have already done something. And they did. And so good for them for doing that. Yep. And, and for Osaka, once again, just incredible leadership from someone so young. Um, I just, I just love her. I think it's great. So aside from me also thinking she's the, the favorite to come out there, um, just the off court stuff has been top notch and, yeah. uh, and I'll, on the I'll, flip side, go ahead. Yastremska before I forget. Yes. Yes. What a train wreck. I mean, <laughs> just what a social media train wreck. This poor kid. I, I, I don't know if I mean that or not mean that it's kind of tongue in cheek, but like, oh man, there was like the, the half blackface thing that she did earlier there on Instagram a month or so ago. I don't know what was up with that. Mm -hmm. And then recently the little going back and forth with her coach, Sasha Bajan about how I thought that I was the best player in your eyes all the time. Was she joking? Was that serious? If she was serious, that's even more awkward. The joke was awkward enough if she was just being funny. Somebody get this woman a PR team to just take over all of the social media, uh, you know, because a lot of growing up, I think, that needs to happen there with uh, with with Yastremska. Yeah, you know, the irony here is it was almost like Sasha Bajan wanting wanting to make the peace because he's the former coach of Naomi Osaka. I think a lot of people thought that that was a, a frigid, bad relationship, and maybe maybe they parted ways on bad terms, thinking things were ugly there. So Sasha Bajan, you know, he he wanted to settle the peace and said, "Congrats." Congratulations, Naomi Osaka and your team. You were the better player today. Good luck. And Diana Yastremska has to get into the replies and say, Sasha, I thought I am the best player on the court in your eyes, even if I lose. You know, it's not like she lost this match 7-6 in the third and had a couple right. of match points. She won four games. She got blown off the court. This is, I mean, reading this tweet, it was like, it, it, it felt like a, a nine-year-old junior player who's crying after they lost on court. I mean... Nothing has made me cringe more during all of this than Yastremska. And, yeah, uh, really and I think bad. she's paired with the right coach, though, because Sasha Bajan could be super awkward, too, with the way he uses social media and just his naive kind of approach and kind of clueless, I guess a clueless approach to some of the things he's tweeted out as well. So they're perfect for each other. Yes. But uh, my goodness, I just, oh, I just, such a cringe moment there. Absolutely. I, I, will, I will say she is an exceptional striker of the tennis ball. She is very dangerous from the back of the baseline. She reminds me a little bit of Ostapenko, where you get a bit of a mixed bag, but when she is rolling and streaking, she can pile up the winners very, very quickly. So she is dangerous in that sense if she does catch fire, that she's a threat. I'm not going to 
say a threat to win this tournament, but a threat to perhaps go deep if she is playing well. Hey, let's talk about a young player who is, um, you know, the opposite of Yastrzemska and that she's super mature and I'm super, always super impressed with when she speaks and, and what she does and how she handles herself. And that's our, our Canadian, Leilani Fernandez, who has had a magical year and, and could be pushing into the top 100 uh, after the U.S. Open, depending on how things go. She's got a very difficult draw opening against a veteran player, a former world number two, a former Grand Slam finalist. Vera Zvonareva um, could get, likely would get Sophia Kennan, uh, our Aussie Open champ, in the second round. What are your expectations and thoughts for, for Leila Annie here? Well, first of all, she's come such an incredibly long way in just a year, and that's without five and a half months of, of tennis, um, just the way she started her 2020 campaign. Because we reflected on how she essentially played her first WTA professional match on the big stage, which happened at Rogers Cup, and really uh, being taught a lesson by Maria Boscova losing, I want to say, love and love. And she is a completely different player. She completely belongs here. And this is a fascinating first-round match, actually, she has because she's playing a player who is twice her age, someone who was in a Grand Slam final we're talking about 10 years ago. So I'm very curious to see how this matchup goes. My, expecta my expectation for Layla, just um, with eyes on the draw, would say this is a great opportunity for her to win a Grand Slam match. Not good, much good more. learning opportunity here. Yeah. Yeah. Not much more than that. Um, then you're going to be facing a Grand Slam champion and Sophia Kennan likely in the second round. So, I mean, as you said, very, very difficult draw, but uh, this is a fascinating first round opponent, um, you know, completely opposite ends uh, in their careers. Vera Zvonareva still has that passion for the game, still wants to continue and play. And uh, she has been playing well enough to get herself into a main draw of a Grand Slam. She is crafty and difficult. Uh, so I want to see how Layla rises to that challenge, playing someone who is so experienced in, in winning matches. But uh, signs have been good in her return, I will say as well. Win or lose, it's going to be a, you know, a positive step forward for our 17-year-old, uh, I think soon to be 18-year-old, Layla Annie Fernandez. And... Uh, I, I think she's going to make, I think, I don't think I'm mistaken here. I think she's going to make it into the top 100 at a younger age than Bianca did. Not that we need to always compare between players or compare between Canadians, but I can't help but just make that observation that, yeah. you know, Bianca was still in the 150s when she was uh, 18, I believe. And, and here we have Leila Annie who could get into the top 100 even, even sooner, which is quite remarkable. So, um, you know, that'll be a big moment. It's almost a foregone conclusion that's going to happen in 2020 for her, yeah. uh, you would think. And uh, I'm definitely going to be watching that one between her and, and Zvonareva, a player I really liked, you know, back in the day. And, uh, and I love seeing these players who, who come back and, and want to see what they can do. And, and another one who we haven't mentioned yet is Kim Kleisters. Yes. And while she played world team tennis and looked really, really good in that format, we haven't seen her make her, you know, professional return yet because a couple of times she's had injury hiccups along the way. And I'm very excited to see her back and, and see what she might be able to do. And look, if there's anywhere where she could even get on a little streak and win a couple matches, it's at Flushing Meadows where she already made, you know, one return years ago and, and won a slam as a, as a mom. And, and here she is now years later trying it again. And man, was she ever hitting that ball with authority during the world team tennis matches that we saw. Yeah, she looked fantastic in World Team Tennis. And uh, I had a chance to actually sit in on her press conference virtually, of course, uh, over the past weekend. And she, she was talking about just feeling sharper and sharper every week uh, the more she trains, just feeling the game a bit better, tactically improving. So she feels like she's taking uh, nice steps every week. She talked about the experience of World Team Tennis and, and what that did for her game and, and her confidence. And also a very tricky first-round opponent for her in a category Arena Alexandrova, who's someone who's also, you know, inside the top 25, actually just inside the top 20 as well. So that's going to be a very tricky, challenging first round match, I think, for the both of them. Alexandrova facing someone who not only has won four grand slams in singles, but three of them, as you said, coming at the U.S. Open. She does love playing at Flushing Meadows. So for me, this is kind of the perfect tournament for her to officially uh, come back as uh, she did rest up and, and opted to skip the western and southern open um hey as we're wrapping up the uh the female side of things here uh i want to talk about dark horses with you yeah uh, and before we do that thoughts about serena williams how confident are we feeling for her 
I mean, I look at the draw and it looks pretty reasonable until perhaps a Madison Keys or Garbina Muguruza in the quarterfinals. That being said, not really sure what to take out of her performance uh, last week in, in, you know, sort of Cincinnati. Yeah, the, the one concern I have for Serena Williams at the moment is we're used to seeing like routine easy wins as she gets going in tournaments. And every victory since this return, starting in Lexington, top seed open, and then playing um, the Western and Southern Open last week, she's grinding her way through these challenging three-set matches. Um, I want to say her fitness and conditioning has has definitely improved. Seems um, like it, yep. Yeah, uh, which, so, so I don't, it's not really a stamina concern per se at, at this point I, I just think for momentum and confidence sake when we did see grand slam chan- champion serena williams take over tournaments we would see first round second round like winning one and two two and oh like confident easy wins and uh i haven't seen that from her yet that doesn't mean she's not going to turn it on as you said i think she has a pretty nice friendly draw to get going maybe monica puig second round Sloan Stevens third round, but I'm not even confident Sloan, Sloan Stevens, Stevens will make it out of the first gonna be round. In the third round. <laughs> if Sloan Stevens makes the third round, that will shock me like nothing else. And don't get me yeah. wrong, I'd love to see it, but it just hasn't been working. Um, You're but right. to get back to Serena, to me, it's the mental side. It's the confidence uh, that is not where it used to be. Mm-hmm. And even when she was making comments at the start of uh, Western Southern there, she was saying something like, yeah, I'm just here to see how it goes. I'm just, and, and it's like, wait a minute. That doesn't sound like you. That doesn't sound, where's the fire? Where's that, you know, I, it was something was missing. And it was almost like to me to make a parallel when Roger Federer started talking in the same sort of way when he'd go to events. And I don't know if it's a way to sort of take off the pressure yeah. or put the pressure on others. Uh, but it just kind of caught me off guard that Serena was talking in that way. And, and that, leaves me wondering what we can expect from her here. Um, I'm, I'm not feeling it from her, unfortunately, but you would have thought going in, hey, what, what better chance for her to, to get that elusive number? Um, oh, my number is 24. 24. Thank you, 24. <laughs> She's at 23. Um, than, uh, than right now, you know? No, you're right. And she does have uh, Maria Sakari in that bracket there. And Sakari defeated her uh, just this past week at, at the Western and Southern Open. But this was a match actually Serena seemed to have control over and, and then kind of let it slip away. And then there were concerns maybe about her physical shape as miles per hour or suddenly falling off her serve. She wasn't served. She wasn't quite getting that same spring in her step. I will say maybe mentally just digging in and finding that extra motivation at her age uh, just gets a bit more and more challenging. So maybe now that we're under the lights of the U.S. Open, she's not going to have the crowd, but I've debated, is it maybe going to help her in that sense to deal with the pressure by herself and not feel, you know, tens of thousands of fans behind her as she goes for history again? Uh, so I do think she's a contender. Uh, she's not going to be my pick to win it, though. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. Um, Dark Horse picks here to uh, finish things off, and I'm going to put two of them out there. Um, two young American players, one Coco Goff, uh, of course, who, I mean, it's only a matter of time. I feel like before we start seeing her seated at these events, she could have another match against Naomi Osaka in the third round, which would be uh, really neat to watch. And, uh, and another one is Amanda Nisimova, who has yeah. already had some big time wins in her young career. And uh, she's coming in as the 22nd seed could see Serena in the fourth round, which would be really cool. I always like seeing the generational matches between players of the same country. So I'm going to put forth both of those names. And, and again, I feel like it's the kids who could come out of this swinging with, uh, with nothing to lose. Yeah, you're right. Nothing to lose for sure. Uh, I'll go in a slightly different direction for my dark horse pick. She's seated 27th. She made history actually at the Australian Open in the front end of the year from Tunisia is Ons Jabur. And uh, right now, she's playing some of the best tennis of her career. Um, Was the first ever Arab woman to actually make a Grand Slam quarterfinal, the last slam. And I think she has quite a nice draw for her first couple of matches. I'm not completely sold on the tennis that Sophia Kennan is playing at this moment. And I think Shabur, if she sets up a potential third-round clash with Sophia Kennan, that she could be a major threat to upend the second seed and maybe make a run into the second week. Yeah, I hear you on that one for sure. And uh, who, who would think that, you know, we could lose the top two seeds, if we lose, sorry, the top two seeds 
it wouldn't throw me off. It wouldn't really be, wouldn't you know, be such a, yeah, exactly. So who knows? Uh, what was that other, there was a, one other name I wanted to throw out there. Oh, Iga Sviantek as uh, a totally unseated option. The 19 year old, uh, she is more than capable, made the fourth round at the Aussie open where she pushed Annette Kontavite, who's been playing some really great tennis this year. She pushed her to three sets. Uh, also beat Donna Vekic and uh, Carla Suarez Navarro. So she's one as well that I think you got to watch. And, uh, if not this year, in the years to come, definitely a player that, uh, that we're going to have an eye on as a, as a potential threat at the slams down the road. But regardless what happens, super pumped, Grand Slam tennis, here we go, going to be watching a ton of it. And uh, even though we're, we're missing Bianca Andreescu big time, uh, so much that we're going to take in. And, and of course, let's close with, you've got an interesting Bianca Andreescu story that you just shared with me this morning. And uh, I, I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, I, I actually thought this was quite hilarious because uh, yesterday being the Sunday, uh, finished writing actually my U.S. Open preview for Sportsnet. There's my little plug if you want to go and check it out. I retweeted that for you, buddy. Tournament. Oh, I appreciate that. And um, uh, my, my girlfriend actually convinced me to take a drive down to Niagara Falls. I didn't want to do this, but she persisted. <laughs> um, so we took the hour, 20-minute drive, and I did what's called the White Water Walk, which is a beautiful path uh, along the water. And we were basically finished up after half an hour. We were, we were walking the other direction, ready to leave. And here's this like strong, athletic-looking woman walking uh, in, in our direction, has a mask on, has sunglasses on. But I turn and look, and I say, is that Bianca Andreescu? And uh, her friend kind of gives me a smirk because, in fact, it is Bianca Andreescu. Um, we don't want to bug her too much, but nobody else actually on this trail was noticing that a uh, Grand Slam champion was in their midst, in their midst, perhaps because of uh, the water as well. Oh, nice pun. That's, that's, <laughs> that's really good, Ben. I like that. Thank you. Thank you. But uh, we, we thought it would be wise to at least go and say hello. They were taking some photos. And in fact, we helped take some photos uh, for Bianca and her friends. She said, I looked familiar because, of course, we've interviewed her in person. Several and, times, uh, yeah. Yeah, and so I got a nice little photo actually at Niagara Falls, socially distanced, of course, with our 2019 U.S. Open champion, Bianca Andreescu. She said, uh, I, I did ask her actually about the U.S. Open. She said, yeah, it's, it's a bummer I'm not there, but, you know, COVID, we'll be back soon, is basically yeah. what she said. So what, what an odd chance meeting between <laughs> the co-host of the Tennis Canada podcast and, you know, Tennis Canada's biggest star. So I think that's a sign. I think that it's a sign. I don't know what it's a sign of actually, but it's, a, it's something <laughs> cool. And, uh, you know, we're, we're definitely trying to get her back on the podcast. It'd be great to talk to her now. I have a feeling it's going to have to be after the open is all said and done. Cause I can only imagine, you know, what she must be feeling not being able to be there and, and defend her title. But, uh, yeah, we've got a good rapport with her and uh, looking forward to the next time we, we talk to, to Bianca for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I have to thank her and her friends who were being extra nice and, and extra gracious with us. So thank you for that. Thank you, Mike, for joining me as we uh, did a full detailed U.S. Open preview. Now we get to sit back and relax and enjoy the action. Well, we'll be working on the action as well. And uh, we will talk to you on Matchpoint Canada next week. Talk to you soon.